So it's good to be with you again. Uh, Anik and I and Peter were passing through, uh, visiting old friends, the, the Schumanns, uh, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and we were, were able to join you on a Sunday morning. And now we're passing back on our way home. And so we thought we'd come again. And uh, Pastor Carsten said, well, the first one is for free, but you've got to work for the second one. So here we are. That's uh, just a silly joke. If you're a visitor here, they're, they're all for free. Please come back. Uh, they know uh, the, 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 the community here would love to have you. Uh, there's no, uh, no limit on how many times you can come. So we are uh, uh, looking at the book of Philippians. And I wanted to talk this morning uh, about how to make an apostle really happy. How to make an apostle really happy. What is it about a gathering of Christians like ours here this morning that brings joy to an apostle, the apostle Paul in Philippians? Now, I'm assuming, of course, that since Paul's letters are inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, that when Paul expresses joy, uh, when he expresses his approval for something uh, in his letters, uh, when he expresses approval for an aspect of Christian life, that this is something that also pleases the Lord. And so then to ask about what makes an apostle really happy is to really ask about what would make the Lord happy? How would the Lord have us live? And we're going to investigate a very narrow slice of this question today by examining a letter to what I think is the Apostle Paul's favorite church. Now, those of you who are parents know you're not supposed to have a favorite child, right? Um, yes, that's the right answer. No favorite children. And apostles weren't probably supposed to have a favorite church. But let's just say there were some churches that needed a very firm hand to keep them on the straight and narrow, while others didn't really need quite as much of the apostles' attention. You foolish Galatians, says Paul, who has bewitched you? He writes to these believers in Galatia who are being tempted to listen, to follow a, a different gospel. Fools. You've been, you've been bewitched. Someone has, has messed with you. And to the Christians in Corinth, he writes, Brothers and sisters, I couldn't address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you're not ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready for it. You are still worldly. Imagine getting that letter from the, from the apostle. And then there's the church in Philippi. Towards the end of the letter, Paul addresses them as my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown. Those of you who've studied Philippians, and uh, uh, even this, this morning, as, as Danny read that passage to us during our prayers, you'll know that that note of joy dominates the letter, including the opening that I'll, I'll read in just a minute. And although there are warnings and exhortations to certain virtues, Paul doesn't seem to write this letter to address a specific problem in the church. He wants them to be unified, to stand firm in the gospel, to serve one another in humble obedience. But the tone of the letter suggests that Paul doesn't say these things because the Philippians aren't doing them, but because he wants them to progress in their faith. 
This is a church without any obvious problems. And Paul wants to encourage them to turn up the volume on their faith from a 7 up to 10. If we were to continue the child analogy for just a little bit longer, the Philippians are like that imaginary child who makes their bed in the morning, eats their vegetables, says please and thank you. Right? That's the, the Philippians. Another clue that this is a church that uh, Paul is generally happy with is in verse 1. Paul addresses them, and he says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. That's a very simple way of introducing himself, or not introducing himself, but addressing them in the letter. Unlike some of his other letters, he doesn't have to remind them that he's an apostle. Listen to Galatians again. These are the opening verses in Galatians. Paul, an apostle, sent not from men, nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father. When I need to write a strongly worded letter to an errant student, fortunately I don't have to do that too often, but when I do, I'll often sign it, Dr. Moore, Vice Principal. But when I write a note of congratulation or a welcoming note, a note of encouragement, I simply sign it as Jonathan. To Paul's first readers, Galatians and 1 Corinthians and some of the other letters where he has to say, remember, I'm your apostle, would have sounded like Dr. Moore, vice principal. And Philippians sounds like Jonathan. And that tone continues throughout. Uh, but let me read the opening passage and you'll see what I mean. Listen for the notes of affection that Paul has for this church. And then we're going to dive into one aspect of this exemplary church that Paul himself highlights in these opening verses. Uh, he, he uses the term in verse 5 of partnership in the gospel. And that's where we'll focus most of our attention this morning. But let me pray, and then we'll read the passage and dive in. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, your servant, the Apostle Paul, whom you inspired to write this letter. We thank you for the church to which you wrote it, that in many ways stand as an example to us. We thank you for uh, the fact that you communicate and speak to us through your word. And so we pray that through your Holy Spirit you do that this morning as we read your word and think through the implications that it has for us here. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So Philippians 1 just the first 11 verses. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart, and whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best 
and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Yeah, sorry, we're Anglicans, so after I read the passage and I say, this is the word of the Lord, you're supposed to say, thanks be to God. Amen. (laughs) Sorry, little quirks there. So as he does in almost all of his letters, Paul begins by giving thanks to God. In many ways, this is unremarkable. Ancient letters simply started that way, right? Paul says, I thank my God every time I remember you and all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel. I don't know if it was only the group of people who who write to me, but during 2020, it felt as if almost every email I received started with, dear Jonathan, I trust you are well. Yeah? Uh, yeah? I wasn't the only one who had that experience. Exactly. And I caught myself using the same phrase, right? It sort of rubs off. In the ancient world, after the first greeting, letters usually contained a prayer of thanksgiving for the recipient's health. Have a look at that opening again. Do you see what Paul gives thanks for? Not for their health, but for their faithfulness. And this would have struck the Philippians as a little unusual. As if someone wrote to you in 2020 and didn't inquire how you were doing. Didn't ask whether you'd had COVID yet. It's not that Paul is unconcerned for their physical well-being, but the thing that brings him great joy, the thing that he wants to thank God for, is their partnership in the gospel. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. That's verse 5. But what does a partnership consist of? What, What does partnership in the gospel mean here? If you studied some other English translations of this verse, you might find something like fellowship in the gospel or participation in the gospel or sharing in the gospel. Uh, The German translations I've been able to find uh, all have Gemeinschaft am Evangelium. That's all the German you're going to get out of me today, I'm I'm afraid. Gemeinschaft am Evangelium, partnership in the gospel. The the key idea is one of, of close association, of having things in common, of sharing in something. And in this case, that something is the gospel. If you've read uh, uh, Tolkien's uh, Lord of the Rings, uh, the, the name of the first part of that uh, uh, trilogy, or the, 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 first, the third of that uh, book, uh, is called The Fellowship of the Ring. And it's the ring, or, or the need to destroy that ring, that pulled together this disparate band of uh, elves and hobbits and humans and dwarves, different species, different backgrounds, Uh, They had very little in common except for this desire, this motivation to see the ring destroyed. That's the common uh, pursuit that made them into this fellowship. And so Paul points to the gospel, that great message of King Jesus' life, death, and resurrection as the one thing that the Philippians have in common with one another and with him and with believers throughout the world. It is their ongoing and future faithfulness to this gospel, to this message, 
that fills Paul with great joy. Now, this is still a fairly abstract idea. So in the time remaining, I want to suggest that there are three concentric circles that explain or, or, or that, that Paul is assuming when he talks about the partnership in the gospel. Circle A, circle B, and then circle C. Okay. A is the big circle on the outside, then circle B, and circle C on the inside. And I'm going to call each of these gifts and life and salvation, respectively. So what do these three circles mean? Let's look first at salvation. The Philippians share in the gospel, that innermost circle, because they have been saved. Acts 16 records how Paul goes to or went to Philippi. And we're told that the Lord, after Paul had preached, opened Lydia's heart to respond to Paul's message. And later, after Paul had been rescued miraculously uh, from uh, or within a Philippian jail, the jailer asked what he needs to do. And Paul says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Not only these Philippians, but many more had responded to this message about the Lord Jesus Christ. As Paul reminded them in chapter 2, Jesus humbled himself, becoming obedient to death on a cross, and was raised by God to glory. And he did this in order to reconcile sinful human beings to God. As partners in the gospel, the Philippians share this reality with Paul. And it's the same reality that many of you here this morning share. With Paul and with the Philippians, you've come to acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord. Like Lydia, your hearts have been opened to this message. Like the jailer, you've believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you've had your sins forgiven. And you know eternal life and the joy of the Lord. But if this gathering is like other Sunday morning services with which I'm familiar, there'll be some here of whom this isn't true. Maybe you're a visitor, uh, maybe you've been coming for a while, uh, but you know that you haven't acknowledged Jesus Christ as Lord. Perhaps you don't believe that he died for your sin to bring you to God. For whatever reason, you haven't yet responded to this message, to this gospel. You can't really identify yourself as a partner with this gospel that Paul preached. And may I suggest to you that this is the day to do so. There's nothing stopping you from turning to the Lord this morning, turning to God in prayer, confessing to Him that you recognize your sin and that you recognize Jesus as the Lord who died to forgive your sin, that you might become a participant, a partner in this gospel message. This is what makes Paul really happy about the Philippians, to know that there are people who recognize and acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. But more importantly, it's not just what makes Paul happy. In one of the stories that Jesus told, he said, there's rejoicing in heaven when someone turns away from themselves and turns to God in this way. Isn't that something? Rejoicing in heaven. So you can join those here this morning who have already been cause for rejoicing in heaven, who already share in this gospel message. Now, I know that the majority of you here this morning probably fall into the category 
Uh, you've already taken this decision. To learn to use Paul's language from verse 7, you've already come to share in God's grace. Share in God's grace with Paul, with the Philippians, with each other, and with countless Christians throughout the world and throughout the world's history. Can I suggest that this is a wonderful truth that we shouldn't take lightly? This is something Paul rejoices in. This is something Paul gives thanks to God for. It's good that we pray for each other's health. We pray about uh, world events. We pray that the Lord intervenes in tragedies like that unfolding in the Ukraine. But here's something else we should be praying for. Giving thanks to the Lord that we are partners in the gospel. Asking the Lord and interceding for others that they might come to be partners as well. Well, from this partnership in the gospel, circle C, we move out to circle B, what I've called life. Life in Philippi, everyday life as partners in the gospel. Paul's joyful and thankful for the Philippians' ongoing partnership in the gospel insofar as they live out their daily lives and the implication, or rather they live out the implication of their salvation, circle C, in their daily lives. Understood in this way, circle C, salvation, provides the foundation for the next circle, circle B. And as you read through Philippians, you'll see the many uh, ways in which the Philippians lived out their salvation. If you look at Paul's prayer for them in verses 9 to 11, you'll see that he prays for them to grow in love and knowledge and insight, discernment, righteousness. Uh, these, are other these and other virtues are shared by the Philippians and Paul and, and many other Christians. In just a moment, we'll look at how Paul commends the Philippians for sharing in the matter of giving and receiving. There are other hints that the Philippians shared in Paul's concern that the Gospels proclaimed throughout the, throughout the world. And we know that they prayed for him. So all of these things are, are aspects of the Christian life that Paul and the Philippians shared as they were partners in the gospel. Now, I suspect all of us would sign up for these aspects of gospel partnership, growing in virtues, exhibiting generosity and gratitude, pro proclaiming the gospel in whatever context God has called us, praying for one another. But as you read Philippians, you see there's a dark cloud on the horizon. It's not so evident in chapter 1, but as you read through the rest of the Philippians, you slowly start to see that cloud forming. In the final chapter, for example, Paul writes to the Philippians, yet it was good of you to share, it's the same word as, as partner, it was good of you to partner in my troubles. Does this mean that they shared the same troubles that Paul did? It could just mean they knew about his troubles and they prayed for him, which I'm sure they would. Uh, they supported him as he, he, he went through those struggles and troubles. That's a possible way of reading that verse. But towards the end of chapter 1, Paul had already written the following. Chapter 1, verse 29 to 30. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you're going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. It's been granted to you, be given to you, not only to believe in Christ, but also to suffer for him, 
facing the same struggle that I have. Now, we don't know the precise nature of this suffering. We know Paul is in jail for preaching the gospel, but we can only speculate as to who put him there or what the charges were. In all likelihood, the suffering that Paul experienced, and he says the Philippians were experiencing, uh, was a combination of, of social as well as uh, official persecution for being part of the strange new religion as it would have been uh, experienced then. Now, most of us will not have experienced persecution from the state, uh, certainly not here in, in uh, uh, Western Europe, but looking around at the uh, uh, different countries uh, represented here this morning, I suspect that some of you come from countries where state persecution, if not active, is, is a real threat. But here, social persecution is probably many of you will have experienced. Snide remarks, some sort of social exclusion because you're a strange Christian, uh, perhaps rejection by your family. Christians in Germany, I suspect, who are open about their faith, do experience some sort of social persecution. And because of its religious history, Europe has largely managed to avoid uh, official state-sanctioned religious persecution over the past three or four centuries. But I suspect that there's a real possibility that European Christians in the near future might need to learn from the early church and from our brothers and sisters in the Middle East or parts of Asia and North Africa about what it looks like to live as a beleaguered minority. Well, you're already a minority, uh, just perhaps not a beleaguered one. You might not feel like a minority because it feels like Christian things are all around us. One report I read said that about a quarter of Germans think of themselves or are considered Roman Catholic, about a quarter Protestant, and the rest of a variety of other things, including the, the biggest or the most quickly, the fastest growing category, which are the nuns. Not N-U-N-S, like nuns that pray, but nuns as in nothing. No, no religious affiliation, they don't really think much about that at all. So that doesn't sound too bad, 25% Roman Catholic, 25% Protestant. But in that same study, they said probably only 6% of Germans are what they defined as practicing Christians, which itself was a very broad category, so I suspect the number is even smaller than that. And for those who didn't do well in mathematics, 6% makes you a tiny minority. Now, again, I make no claims to being a prophet, and I, I don't want this to sound like I'm uttering a prophecy, but I think there is a real chance that within the next few years, whether it's five years or 10 years or 20 years, there's a chance, a real chance, that European Christians will be persecuted by their neighbors and possibly even by their state for preaching biblical truths, for holding on to the scriptures as they've been passed on to us. And there are all sorts of things that we might talk about as to how Christians live under those conditions, how the scriptures prepare us for persecution. But I want to highlight the simple truth that's raised in this passage. We should understand persecution and are determined to hold on to the gospel during this persecution as evidence that we are sharing in the same gospel that Paul and the Philippians shared. 
See, the temptation is often to think of suffering as punishment from the Lord. We suffer because we've done something wrong. We think of those who would mock Christians when they suffer. Where is your God now? And of course, the Bible does teach that sin does sometimes contain its own punishment, right? Uh, This is Romans 1. And we can think through examples. Gluttony leads to ill health. Uh, covetousness, Covetousness and greed leads to discontent and unhappiness and so on. But we should be very slow to make a direct connection between someone's particular suffering and sin. We're always reminded of John 6, where Jesus and his disciples encounter a blind man. And Jesus is asked, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents, that he's born blind? And Jesus doesn't take the bait. And he says, neither this man nor his parents sinned. But this has happened so that the work of God might be displayed in him. And may our persecution, our struggles, our suffering display the work of God in our lives. For the Philippians, it was their faithful adherence to the gospel that was a demonstration of God's faithfulness in their lives. May our faithful adherence to that gospel, may our unity in this gospel, the way in which we live our lives, show that we are indeed part and partners in this apostolic gospel. And finally, and very briefly, we must note that the Philippians are partners in the gospel with Paul. This is the final circle, the last circle, in that they provided gifts to support Paul's gospel ministry. I've called this circle A. So we've moved from the foundation, circle C, to Uh, which is salvation to gospel life in general. And now one example of that, which is the Philippians' generosity to Paul. He mentions the gift in chapter 4, saying, early on when I set out from Macedonia, no one shared with me, again, the same word. No one partnered with me in the matter of giving and receiving except for you. And now I've received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you've sent. Paul was in prison, and in the ancient world, uh, prisoners weren't looked after by the state. You were simply thrown in prison, and it was up to your friends or family to come and provide food or whatever else you needed in prison. And if they didn't, well, bad luck. You just somehow had to to, uh, survive or, or die. So this sort of support was critical. And Paul recognizes this support as a very particular type of partnership in the gospel, for which he is extremely grateful. He's overjoyed with their giving towards him because they're acting exactly as he encourages them to continue to act towards one another. Throughout this letter, there's a constant theme of looking out not for one's own interests, but for the interests of others. If you've read the letter, you you, you might remember that in chapter 2, Paul holds up Timothy and Epaphroditus, and he gives a little little update on their their ministry and what uh, what he's planned for them. And it seems a bit odd until you recognize, oh, he's actually holding them up as examples of those who look look out for others' interests and not their own interests. Paul says, I have no one else like Timothy who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. 
That's an odd way of putting it. Everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Christ. Elsewhere, Paul will say, don't look out for your own interests. Look out for others' interests. Can you see what's happening here? For Paul, looking out for the interests of other Christians is looking out for the interests of Jesus Christ. This matter, as he puts it in chapter 4, of giving and receiving goes beyond our normal uh, gifts and, and, and uh, things that we might do in, in, in general life. Within the church, giving and receiving takes on a far more profound status because of who we are as the body of Christ. When we're looking after the interests of others, we're looking after the interests of the church as a body. Think of the analogy that Paul often uses of you know, different parts of the body. When the hand looks after the mouth's interest, it's looking after the whole body's interest, right? And in doing so, also looking after the hand's interest. But for Paul, this is looking after the interests of Christ. Now, sometimes giving can feel like a burden. Sometimes receiving can make us feel guilty. But Paul will have none of this. Both giving and receiving are a blessing and a joy because of who we are in Christ. Christians giving within the body of believers, supporting the church, seeing the church built up, and the church receiving gifts from others within the body should guard our hearts against seeing this as a burden and understanding this matter of giving and receiving as a delight. We're quickly running out of time, so let me leave you with this one idea. Partnership in the gospel in this matter of giving and receiving, because of how the Bible understands us as a body, is never a one-way street. We often think, well, those who can give and those who need receive, right? And it, it feels like a one-way street. But as soon as we start thinking of ourselves as a body, we recognize that we actually need those. That's why God has put those people in our body. They have something to offer. We, we might be giving in a particular way, but they have something else to give in another way. It might not be financial. Think of Paul's situation. The Philippians give to Paul financially, but Paul responds by blessing them with this letter. He'd started off that chain of giving and receiving by bringing them the gospel, the greatest gift they could have wanted. So in our lives, I think, as we think about the blessing of giving and receiving, we, we recognize as a body that it's always a two-way street. Well, not even a two-way street, maybe more like those big roundabouts with lots of exits and lots of entrances and, and giving and receiving goes round and round. And so the body is built up and strengthened and matured. <coughs> Excuse me. Paul made at least three visits to Philippi, uh, possibly more. This wasn't unusual. We know that Paul visited congregations again and again when he could to encourage them, to see them grow. 
But sometime after his third visit, Paul wrote this warm, joyful letter to the believers in Philippi to thank them for the gifts that they had sent him. And these gifts were proof that they shared with Paul in God's grace, God's great gift of salvation. And this morning we spend a bit of time exploring the different aspects of what Paul calls their partnership in the gospel. Partnership seen in salvation, in their daily lives, and in this gift of Paul, in this matter of giving and receiving. All done, persevering in the face of suffering and persecution. And it's my prayer for you here in the greater Frankfurt area. Uh, as you continue to serve the Lord faithfully, like the Philippians, that you will continue to grow in these things. You understand your salvation more deeply. Continue to live out the Christian life, as I've seen here. Continue to give and receive with joy. And that you'll continue to grow as a body of believers uh, that Paul would be happy with, but more importantly, who bring the Lord great joy and who lead to much rejoicing in heaven. Amen. Should I, should I pray? Where's Danny? Can I pray for you? And then we're, then we're going to have our final, our final hymn. Our Heavenly Father, I thank you this morning for this body of believers here in ICF. I thank you for their faithfulness in the gospel. Thank you that you have called them, that you've empowered them to live a Christian life in often difficult circumstances, that you've made them generous in the matter of giving and receiving. And I pray that you would continue to do these things and grow them as you make them not only more like the congregation in Philippi, but as you make them more like Christ. Amen.